1: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss improving your mental nutrition. Decades ago, we realized that our society had started eroding our physical health with desk jobs and fast food, and we became conscious of the need for fitness and nutrition. Now, we stand at the precipice of an even bigger struggle. We are healthier and happier than ever before, and yet anxiety, suicide, and depression are on the rise. How do we improve our mental fitness and take action to challenge our irrationality, our impulsiveness, and our bad habits? Do you want to finally move past inaction, procrastination, and laziness? Do you want to feel happier about the world? Then listen to this interview with our returning guest, Mark Manson. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more... I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word smarter to the number 440. 222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed the truth about championship performance. Nobody becomes a champion by accident. We uncovered the counterintuitive reality that being a champion isn't about doing more, it's about doing less. We exposed the reality that most people spend too much time planning and not enough time acting and share the specific habits and routines that you can use to model your behavior after champions with our previous guest, Dana Cavalea. If you want a behind-the-scenes look at world championship performance, Listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Mark. Please note, this episode contains profanity. Today we have another exciting guest back on the show, Mark Manson. Mark is the New York Times and international best-selling author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and his new already best-selling book, Everything Is Fucked. His blog, Markmanson.net, attracts more than two million readers a month. He's also the CEO and founder of Infinity Squared Media. Mark, welcome back to The Science of Success.
2: It's good to be back, man. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, well, we're, uh, we're super excited to have you back on the show and really enjoyed some of the themes and ideas from from the latest book, and I want to dig into those. To start out, I'm curious, what kind of inspired or, or drove you to, to dig into this new topic or to write Everything is Fucked?
2: Well, there, there were two inspirations. One was... I guess you'd call it cultural, and then one was more personal. The cultural inspiration, I think, regardless of what country you live in or where you are on the political spectrum, things have gotten very ugly in the last few years in most Western countries. There's a lot of polarization. People are very upset. um, We're starting to see a lot of a rise in mental health issues, and we're seeing a rise of them in, in some of the most comfortable and safest parts of the world. And so that just kind of freaked me out. I was very curious about what was going on. And so I started doing a lot of research around that. The personal inspiration was, you know, subtle art became a massive success. I think I, think I came on your show like a week or two after it came out. Um, We'd like to take credit for that, by the way. <laughs> it, was, it was all your podcast. I mean, it was just, you know, it's, I, I pushed the first you know, 20, 30,000 copies and you guys pushed the, the next 5 million. So I really appreciate that. But it, it's that, that book just became this insane, it's like Avengers level success in the publishing world. It sold over 6 million copies at this point. And that just, it actually messed with me. It, it was, you know, it was amazing for a couple months You it know, took the wife to Paris and uh, took a nice vacation and played a bunch of video games. But, uh, you know after about 3 or 4 months of that this this kind of existential crisis set in of oh shit i accomplished all my my goals my all my dreams came true and i don't know what to do with myself i don't know essentially i don't know what to hope for and that left me in a very strange very strange kind of like mild depression in that everything in my life was amazing and everybody's like high-fiving me and congratulating me and i'm just kind of like wandering around from day to day not knowing what the point of doing anything else is and so i i I found that very strange that was very it was a very unexpected experience for me i have since learned that uh it's not uncommon for people who experience a high amount of success very quickly um but I got very curious about like what was going on. Like what what was it when I looked back at other parts of my life where I felt kind of depressed. You know, it it made sense. I was like an angry 18-year-old and felt like I had no control over my own life. Um and here I was like 32 and everything I ever wanted happened and I was feeling the same way. And so eventually I kind of zeroed in on this concept of hope, of like needing something to hope for, needing some sort of vision that the future is going to be better than today to help you continue to get up and and moving in the morning and feeling like your your life has a sense of purpose. And then I took that and, and I saw how it kind of overlapped with this more cultural stuff that I was researching, um, you know, of how like suicide rates are the highest in the the wealthiest and safest neighborhoods. It's the the most developed countries that you see people struggling the most with mental health issues. And so those two threads kind of came together and um, that was the start of this next book. It's so interesting because your experience in
1: many ways mirrors that of people like astronauts, et cetera, that go, you know, go to the stars and then they come back to earth and they're like, well, what do I do now? Yeah, You know, I think you're focused on what I consider and and in many ways is a theme that we talk so much about on the show, which I think is one of the biggest problems of our time. This idea that and it's something that perplexes me which I'm so glad that you wrote about it and, and, and had such great insights around it because it's something I find so fascinating that we're physically healthier, safer than we've ever been in, in the history of the, the human species. And yet people think the world is ending and depressions on the rise and mental health issues continue to to pop up. It's such a fascinating problem.
2: Yeah, it's it's a bit of a paradox. Um, and it's it's almost like the better things get the more we have to lose, and the more anxious we become about losing it, you know, it's a, it's, we're not a very grateful species. We're, we're, we're actually kind of the opposite. We're, we're like, this is amazing. Oh crap! What if it's taken away? And then we all start freaking out.
1: Yeah, exactly. And there's, uh, there's some interesting psychology research around that as well. But you, you open the book with this concept that I thought was, which kind of dovetails into this, but I thought was a, was a really interesting notion and underpins a lot of the, the themes we've already started to talk about. But tell me ab- about this idea of, as you call it, the uncomfortable truth.
2: So the uncomfortable truth is is essentially the the realization of our own mortality and our own cosmic insignificance. You know, it's like once you start understanding the scale and the scope of the universe and everything, it quickly makes all of those little things that you worry about or think are important in your day-to-day life uh, seem pretty insignificant. And I think any, anybody who's gone through a, a very dark period in their life has has kind of struggled with this realization that um, everything seems a little bit futile. And I, I ended Subtle Art talking about, like the last chapter of Subtle Art was about confronting your own mortality and why that's important because it helps you helps you get clear about your own values. And so I kind of picked up where the last book left off and started this book with that same look at mortality and and our own insignificance and owning up to that and, and recognizing that like, hey, look, if we're going to find any sort of meaning or importance or or sense of hope in this life, it's because we have to to create it for ourselves. We have to find something that we choose to believe is is worthy of, of dedicating our lives to. And that's a huge responsibility. And that's a great point.
1: And I think many people and, and the book obviously discusses this theme, really get scared in the face of that immense weight and responsibility.
2: Yeah, it's hard. It's stressful, you know? And it I don't think most people think of it that way. I think most people they, they kind of get carried by wow the narratives that are pushed on them or, you know, what they grew up believing or what their parents taught them or whatever. But I think it's at some point it's healthy to, to understand that these narratives, I call them hope narratives. These, these hope narratives are essentially you're buying into them. You're, you're choosing to believe that, you know, getting that job is, is going to be important or that like your kids going to that school is going to be important and make, make their lives better. Like these are all, very much beliefs taking on faith and that's fine. Like we all have to do that, but it's important to recognize that we're choosing to do that. Like it, it's in our head. It's not, there's not some like, <laughs> like universal law that's like, you know, getting a raise next month is going to make everything better. So in essence, these hope
1: narratives help us or allow us to hide from this reality of where humans or where any particular human stands on the cosmic scale of time and space and and how insignificant we really are when you look at the expanse of the cosmos
2: yeah and i think we we need we need these narratives to kind of sustain ourselves i think part of the problem with what happened to me after subtle art blew up and became so successful is that my hope narrative died (laughs) you know it's like i had this narrative in my head for most of my adult life of, you know, I want to become a bestselling author. I want to sell a bunch of books. I want to become very successful. If I do those things, everything's going to be great. And I, so I, that motivated me that, that, that hope like got me up every day for 10 years. And then suddenly it happens and you realize like, oh, I'm still this like fucked up dude who's like living in a shitty world. <laughs> like nothing's changed at all. <laughs> and so that hope narrative dies. And so um, I needed to find a new one. I needed to find something else to put my hopes in to to believe would, um, you know, would make my my life or make the world a better place. So what happens when we don't sort of own up to our
1: cosmic insignificance?
2: I think if we don't own up to it, it's eventually going to knock us on our ass when we're not expecting it. I think it's important. The reason i, I and it, and it's funny because some some people, I've done some interviews where they've they've misinterpreted what I'm writing about as nihilism. And my whole point is actually like the only defense against nihilism is recognizing that that, you know, this cosmic insignificance exists. Like you need to keep it in the back of your mind and kind of know know the game that your psychology is playing so that you'll be more prepared to defend against it. Um, I think it's the people who are constantly denying the uncomfortable truth um, and running away from the uncomfortable truth. uh, That's when something happens in their life that just completely causes them to spin out. So in the face of that cosmic backdrop, how do we start to build up or create meaning for ourselves? Well, the the first thing I talk about is, there are three three components that I talk about. Um, the first one is is that we need to have, feel as though we have a sense of control over our life, that we can control our actions and our destiny and, and, and actually get somewhere. Uh, the second one is we need to value something. So we need to decide that something is worth getting to. Um, and then the third component is we need to have a group or a community of people who share our values and who can help us pursue whatever we find important. So those, the, all three of those things kind of work together. If you're not really able to control your own actions, if you're not really in, in control of your own life, it doesn't matter what you value because you're not going to feel like you can get there. And if you don't feel like anything's important or if you can't find something that feels valuable in your life, uh, then it doesn't matter how much control you have. And then Finally, if if you can't find like a, a group or a tribe of people who share your values, you're just going to feel like a, a crazy loner and nobody wants that.
1: There's a lot of different ways I want to dig into this, but starting out, for people who struggle to find their own values or find can't figure out what they actually value in life, how do you
2: approach that challenge? Finding something to value is... It's hard because I don't think you can necessarily just intellectually find something. It's like, oh, well this is important, now I care about this. You know, one one thing I spend a lot of the early book talking about, or the first half of the book talking about, is how our, I call them the thinking brain and the feeling brain, but essentially it's it's our values and emotions aren't necessarily tethered to our rational thoughts. And so you can read a bunch of books about this cause or why this is important or why you should pursue that. Uh, But unless you feel as those, as though those things are valuable and important in the world, there's a good chance you're not going to get off your ass and do anything. Um, So essentially when it, all of these issues around purpose and discipline and control and importance, these are essentially, these are emotional issues. These are, these are issues with, um, experiencing and finding value in the world on an emotional level. And so I think the first step for somebody who feels kind of aimless and purposeless is to simply um, kind of develop an action-oriented bias of just saying, fuck it, I'll try anything. You know, Start saying yes to everything. Start going out and giving anything a try because until you actually get those experiences and then see how you emotionally react, to each of those situations, you don't really know how you feel about them or how you value them. That's a great piece of advice. And it's funny, one of my
1: all-time favorite articles that you've ever written, and probably one that I've shared with more people than any other piece of content you've created is the piece you wrote many years ago about the do something principle and how having a bias towards action helps actually create motivation. And people often think it's the reverse, that you need to be motivated to act, but really you should act to create your motivation.
2: Yeah, it's the, the action generates inspiration and motivation, not the other way around. Because really our emotions are simply feedback to experience. And so if you're not experiencing anything, then you're not going to feel anything.
1: And I think you make another great point, which is this idea that all of the issues around purpose, discipline, control, etc., are emotional challenges not intellectual ones and so just by reading about it or studying it or conceptually grasping it you're not necessarily going to solve those challenges without investigating it at at a deeper level
2: yeah i've got a fun metaphor that i kind of i use throughout the first half of the book which is that you know it's your consciousness is a car and like let's say you want to lose weight you can read as many books as you want about nutrition and working out and workout programs or whatever, Um, but that intellectual understanding, you're essentially just driving, or you're drawing a map of how to get where you want. At the end of the day, it's your feeling brain that drives the car. And so you can, and I know this because I've gone through this myself many, many times, it's like I know exactly what I should be doing At the gym, I know what I should be eating. I know what habits I should develop, and I sit on the couch and eat Doritos and watch Netflix. And that's—it's fundamentally because I don't feel like doing the things that I know I should be doing. And so, ultimately, to develop those habits and to develop that that sense of self-discipline or self-control, it's an emotional process. It's not just about learning what to do; it's learning how to get yourself to a place where you feel like doing it, where it becomes an exciting or pleasurable or rewarding thing for you. Um, because until, until you do that, it's, uh, it's never going to develop into, into a habit. Like you can't brute force your way into, you know, new life, lifelong habits. It just, it just doesn't work that way.
1: And it's funny because I think in the world of business and, and these, These deeper personal development topics it's easy to lose sight of this topic but for me weight loss has always been such a great or or healthy lifestyle or whatever you want to call it has always been such a great example of the the crystal clear disconnect between knowledge and action or results right because it's it's so easy to know intellectually what you need to do to be healthy or to lose weight or whatever and yet actually achieving those results is almost never a question of lack of information it's always a question of what are the emotional barriers and how do you overcome them
2: yeah and and if you're particularly nerdy and and intellectual like like I think we are and probably a lot of your your listeners it's you you can even fall into the trap of thinking that reading more books is doing something you know so it's like you you actually trick yourself into feeling satisfied cuz you 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 understate you've read like 7 books about nutrition you're like now nah, i i know everything and i'm like i'm nailing this i'm totally kicking ass right now and meanwhile you're like you're not actually physically doing anything
1: yeah i think there's there's totally a danger of that and I like to expand it out from weight loss because it's such a simple, crystal clear example, but it applies to anything. It applies to business. It applies to life. It applies to any theme or topic that's holding anybody back who's listening to this. It, it's probably not a question of lack of information or lack of knowledge that's really holding you back from the results. It's a question of of emotion and motivation and and digging into some of these deeper challenges.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could... Relationships... Avoiding difficult topics in relationships with your boss. Like the thing that I even say this in the book, you know, when I make this point in the book, that essentially all of these problems, uh, you know, inaction, procrastination, over intellectualization, laziness, like these are all emotional problems. And I say, like, that sucks because emotional problems are much more difficult. To deal with, uh, they're not easy to understand or, or wrestle with, and it takes a lot of self- awareness and practice to overcome them
1: coming back to and, and, and we've been talking about some of these themes already, but coming back to this idea of the the thinking brain versus the feeling brain, and one of the other themes that resonated with me around the topic where you, the, the chapter of the book where you really dig into human irrationality was this notion of the illusion of self-control. Tell me a little bit more about that.
2: So most of us, what's fascinating when you when you dig into the research is that you, you find that we're very irrational creatures. And most of our actions are impulsive, selfish, not nearly as thought through as we would like to believe they are. And what's funny is that our thinking brain or our conscious mind is basically spends most of its time coming up with reasons that justify what we just did. And so I call the chapter self-control is an illusion just to kind of point out that it's you know at the end of the day it's it's the feeling brain that's that's driving the car and we're never going to change that. The best we can do is simply work our thinking brain be honest with our thinking brain and 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 get it on the same page to, to help it influence the feeling brain to do the right things. Um, and once we do that, that creates the illusion of self-control. It's like when both of your brains, your thinking and your feeling brain agree on what should be done, that's when you feel like you have control over your life. And so it's, it's hard to get there. And it's, and it's not something people like hearing, you know, we all are biased towards believing that, that all of our actions are rational and completely justified and true. And so, so accepting that they're not, and then doing the hard work of, of questioning how you're justifying yourself and what, what those narratives and stories you're using to explain away bad habits or bad behaviors. It's an uncomfortable and, and painful thing, but that's it's only through that process that we 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 create that sense that we're we're in control of our lives. So
1: tell me more about that process. How do we work through and merge or align our thinking and feeling brains?
2: So the the way I I talk about it is it's kind of like it's like imagine two people stuck in a car together and they speak different languages. You kind of have to find ways to translate for one another. So um a simple example that I use, and you know, we can again the weight loss example is so universal and simple. Um, you know, like let's say you want to you know you should go to the gym and you're just not going. One of the tricks that you can do as a thinking brain is you can say like, well, hey, feeling brain, we should we should go to the gym today. And when you say something like that to yourself, your feeling brain doesn't respond with like an argument. Your feeling brain responds with a feeling like you feel lazy, you feel tired, you feel intimidated. And so the thinking brain, the first rule, goal of the thinking brain is to like, be able to recognize the emotions that arise and then respond to them um, with new narratives. So you could say like, oh, well you're in, okay, we're intimidated, so how about this? How about we just go and walk on the treadmill? Your feeling brain responds with like, hmm, okay, a little bit of relief, Little bit of uh uh satisfaction, little bit of anticipation. Uh and you say, like, Okay, cool, you know, we made a deal. Let's just go walk on the treadmill. And then you get to the gym and you're walking on the treadmill and, and you're like, Well, hey, we're we're right here. You know, we might as well like we We could do some rows, or like pick up a weight or whatever. And your feeling brain, now that you're there and it's so much simpler and you you've overcome that first barrier, your feeling brain is kind of like, "Ah, oh, yeah, why not pick up a weight and do a little bit of workout?" And so, in this way, there's like this dialogue that goes back and forth and between your conscious thoughts and then your emotional reactions to those thoughts. And I think you know one way you could describe a lot of forms of therapy, whether it's CBT or a c t, or one way you could describe emotional intelligence is getting very good at that dialogue between your conscious thoughts and then your emotional reactions to those thoughts. And I, I say in the book that you you essentially, as a thinking brain, you learn you have to learn to like barter with your feeling brain like a some like haggler in a Moroccan bazaar. Like you just have to like keep lowering the stakes until your feeling brain is willing to get on board. And then you go do the action and you experience the benefits. And when I say benefits, you experience the emotional benefits. You know, you walk out of the gym, you're like, wow, I feel so good for doing that. I'm really glad I went. You know, that's, that's your feeling brain getting on board with the idea of going to the gym more often. So it's this, this weird interplay that happens inside of all of us, but we're, we're just not aware of it most of the time.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. A really good way of looking at it, understanding the dialogue between those two. And I, I love the idea of lowering the stakes, keep lowering the stakes until the feeling brain starts to get on board with what the thinking brain wants to do.
2: Yeah. And it works for, works for a lot of stuff. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm already, I'm thinking about that dialogue
1: and and it's even helping me recontextualize a little bit the way that I think about, you know, when I don't feel like doing something, giving that sort of mental model of the feeling brain and the thinking brain and how they, how they interact can be a really powerful tool to help unpack that. Yeah. So I want to transition and talk about another theme from the book that I think is really important, which is this notion of, of fragility and anti-fragility and which harkens back to the topic we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation around, why is our society today so fragile and, and what do we need to do to toughen up?
2: Yeah, one thing, and it's funny because we keep, we keep just going to like the, the health and nutrition metaphors, but, but one way I've been describing it, I mean, the, there's two, two chapters in the book that are dedicated to anti-fragility and, and how I think the ways in which I think our culture is becoming more fragile and and less resilient. But the simplest and quickest way to describe it is, you know, the same way. I think probably in the 1950s or 60s, life became sedentary. You know, like everybody started working in offices and people left the farms. And we quickly realized that if you sit around all day and you know just eat cupcakes or whatever, your body starts falling apart. And so we had this kind of revolution that happened you know, in the 1970s and 80s around health, nutrition, fitness, that's when people started going to gyms and bodybuilding became a thing and people started running. And there was kind of this awakening of like, okay, modern life does not provide our physical body the regular amount of stress and challenge that it needs to be to, to stay healthy. So we need to kind of design things that we can do ourselves to do that for us. I think what we're going through right now is, is a similar thing with our mental and emotional health. Our mind operates in a similar way as a muscle. If it is not regularly stressed and worked and challenged in a certain capacity, it becomes more fragile and weak. And eventually it'll just completely break down. And I think right now we're, we're living in the informational equivalent of like a McDonald's Culture of like news and information. It's it's just tons of junk with very little nutritious value, and so I think the same way. You know, you have to to consciously break down your muscle to build it back up and make it stronger. We need to do the same things with our psychological health. We need to look for certain degrees of conflict, confrontation, opposing viewpoints, um, challenge our own beliefs, challenge our own impulses and desires because i think what's happening today is just so much of this new technology is geared towards indulging every whim and desire that we have all the time it's making us less and less not even willing less it's it's making us less and less capable of coping with opposing viewpoints or ideas or messages that might challenge us
1: that's another great analogy And I completely agree with that idea that the vast majority of the content and things like Twitter and Facebook and social media, the news, et cetera, it's all mental junk food, basically. It's a perfect description to call it McDonald's. And you're right. I think we're at the beginning of this early awakening that we really need to focus on our our mental nutrition, for lack of a better term. We need to focus on our, our mental health and we need to be really consciously thinking about how can we develop the tools and the strategies and i think that's one of the reasons obviously you're writing your books and the re, one of the reasons we're doing the the podcast is to start to help people understand these things a little bit better but it's it's such a such an important topic and something that so few people are really thinking about right now
2: yeah it's it's hard because i think there's this this kind of natural assumption or impulse in our culture that it's you know, give people what they want. Like people want something faster and more convenient, give it to them. If people want to read articles that they agree with, give it to them. Like that's kind of been the basis of of our economy, I guess, for the last hundred years. And, and I think we're reaching a tipping point where it's like, if you give people too much of what they want, they just become infantile and, and immature and, and uncompromising towards others. Um, and you can't really have a functioning society w- when that's
1: the case. There's a couple different things I want to unpack from that I want to get into because you have a great discussion in the book around the, the differences between maturity and immaturity. But before we do, one of my, and probably my favorite point from the entire book was the the notion that you had that instead of technology and things like social media capitalizing on our psychological flaws, what if there was an alternate reality or we built a new world where technology and, and, and AI actually helped us recognize that the flaws in our thinking, recognize our cognitive biases and steered us in the right direction instead of becoming a positive feedback loop that just continues to make it worse and worse and worse and reinforce all of our biases and, and, and psychological flaws?
2: Yeah, that's one of the last points I make in the book is that I think our technology has developed in a direction where it's taking advantage of our psychological weaknesses, which makes sense. I mean, in in terms of like making a profit, that's where the easy money is. It's easy to get people to click on stuff that Pisses them off. It's easy to show like salacious headlines or pictures or get people addicted to certain apps or games. That doesn't mean it's good, though. And so, I think one of one of the things that I think is is important going into the next couple decades is that we start developing technology that helps us compensate for our psychological weaknesses. That because we, we're definitely going to have the technology. Like you know, there could easily be plugins that are able to check and verify how reliable a certain website is or how, you know, fact check articles in real time or fact check Facebook posts in real time. Like there's that we're not far away from that. But it, the, the problem right now is just that that's probably not a profitable thing to develop. But our society and our culture needs that. It's
1: funny literally yesterday, I popped onto Facebook, which I hate doing, but someone was trying to communicate with me via Facebook message. And I saw a post from a friend of mine and he posted this this chart and it was something basically out of factfulness by hans Rosling that was like all these the child poverty going down and early childhood education and all this stuff going up basically all the stats about how the world is so much safer and better than than people could possibly imagine and there was there was a comment on there that was like i don't believe any of these stats like what are your sources <laughs> it's, i it was it's per, I, I literally screenshotted it and just sent him the
2: the screenshot and i was like definition of a cognitive bias Dude, it's, it's crazy. There's something about, and you know, I talk about this towards the end of my book, like it, there's something about the convenience and the constant, uh, I guess, wish fulfillment or, or, or impulse fulfillment of the technology that is, it's making people, it's removing the stakes of having crazy beliefs. Um, one of the things I I mention in, in my references is that that like the Flat Earth Society, the has grown, their membership has grown over a thousand percent the last couple of years. These are people who believe the earth is flat. <laughs> like they have they have access to all of the, the wisdom and knowledge of the entire human civilization on the internet, yet they choose to get on and talk about how the earth is flat and it's so we're way beyond any point of you know factual argument like we're in the realm of psychology we're in the realm of uh feeling brains running amok of believing whatever they want because there are no consequences to, to believing crazy things and so i think You know the side effect of all the great things that the internet has done and social media has done that you know one of the pernicious side effects is that it has enabled that it has enabled the ability for people to believe whatever the hell they want without any consequences and as soon as you do that the maturity of people drops and the the ability to to function as a as a democracy or a a modern society drops as well so
1: i want to dig into the the solution to that or how do we pull back from this precipice but before we do you you touched again on this notion of maturity tell me in the book you have a great discussion of what you call immaturity versus maturity how do you think about those concepts and how do they apply to this dynamic
2: so it's interesting because i've always had a very kind of casual interest in developmental psychology and as i was writing this book i was writing about All these things that we've been talking about, how people are becoming more impulsive and just more willing to disregard any facts or statistics or data that they're confronted with, and how there's less and less repercussions for um, people just indulging whatever they feel and whatever they want to be true. And I realized I'm like, you know, this is kind of like if you look at developmental psychology, the definition of growing up is a child slowly learning to subvert their own impulses or recognize their own, ha- have a willingness that they're wrong, have a willingness to compromise their own views, have a willingness to um, recognize that, that their perspective is limited and, and, and is, is personal, you know, it's not objective. And I, and I realized I'm like, holy shit, like this is what's happening is we're all becoming children again we're all going back to you know i want the cookie and i want it now and it's like there's nothing that you can say that will change that person's mind and that's just that actually bummed me out more than probably anything else <laughs> because i mean we know everything else about children you know that we know like we're basically becoming very highly educated and in individualistic children um because you know and, and the problem is that children it's they don't compromise they become very violent very easily, and they don't. They're, they're not able to form meaningful relationships or meaningful connections to others or to society well at all. You know, they're little narcissists essentially. So yeah, I, I think something's got to change in the
1: culture. And to me, that's one of the biggest challenges of our society. And I think one of the the core missions of the science of success is to help open people's eyes and realize that you have to question your own assumptions, you have to understand your own cognitive biases, you have to pursue rational scientific thinking through the vein of somebody like a Charlie Munger or a Carl Sagan, and yet the world today is slipping more and more away from that. Now that we're standing on the precipice of this, how do we pull back?
2: I, I, don't, I don't know, man. I, I, so there's only one part of the book that is actually prescriptive. Because I, I ultimately, I, I think these problems are systemic. I think it's, I mean, there are things that we can do individually. I think that the information diet, or as you called it, like mental nutrition, I think that's a huge part of it. I've got a chapter where I talk about the value of making commitments and, and limiting yourself. But I, I think on a wide scale, our approach to, to, to this technology is gonna have to change. And I, I think we're starting to see that, I mean, both people at Facebook and Twitter are starting to talk about how they're concerned. They're, they finally acknowledge that these problems exist and that they're, they're thinking about them. But I, I think it's also incumbent on us as individuals to take responsibility for our mental consumption habits and our own impulses and challenging our assumptions. And, and I think it's you know, the same way you seek out like a physical health regimen. We need to f- seek out a mental health regimen. You know, read read things that challenge you, read opposing viewpoints, talk to people face to face who uh, you don't necessarily agree with and and empathize with them because that's, as individuals, that's what we need most right now, I think.
1: What are some specific strategies that an individual that's listening to this conversation right now could implement to begin improving their mental nutrition?
2: Well, one thing I've been talking, I've been doing a series of talks around the country, and, and one of the things I've been talking about is I I actually think I think the internet has caused us to think too globally in a lot of senses. I mean, it's good to be aware of global issues, but at the end of the day, unless you dedicate your life to a global cause, you're probably not going to make much of a dent in it. And so I think there needs to be a little bit of a return to local concerns in local community, I think, you know, people should get involved in local groups. They should volunteer at the local school or the local homeless shelter, um, get involved with local causes, because not only is that, not only is that probably more effective in the long run, if everybody did more of that, but it's also uh, in coming back to that, bringing a full circle back to hope, if you're constantly focused on global problems, it's going to take you to a hopeless place because you're just going to feel com- disempowered and and feel like as though you have no control over the outcome. Um, when you engage your community, when you go actually see people face to face and help them or interact with them, you develop not only that sense of community and that sense of purpose, but it, it also makes you it gives you a sense of hope and meaning that is more resilient and can be sustained more. And the other amazing thing that happens when you start spending most of your time with people face to face, I think anybody who's ever deleted all their social media apps has experienced this. It's like you delete all the apps, you spend about two or three days in a fetal position rocking back and forth, and then you realize that you're actually forced to go outside and see people, and within a week of doing that, you it's the whole social media world just seems so disconnected from reality. Like it's not real. It's this imagined place where everything is exaggerated and extreme and, and everybody's upset all the time. And it's, if you actually go down the street and talk with a neighbor or help out at the school or something like things are pretty good, like life's okay (laughs) and it's going to be okay. So I've been encouraging, I've been championing more of that. That's a great strategy
1: and reminds me of that quote. I'm probably going to butcher it, but paraphrasing, it's never doubt that a a small group of committed people can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has or or, or whatever that quote is. Um, But it's a great reminder that just because you see on the news some massive, insurmountable structural challenge, the way to actually create change, create a positive impact is to start with yourself. You know, I wrote a I wrote a post which I'll throw into the show notes a a year or two ago about putting on your rationality oxygen mask and and starting with investigating your own limiting beliefs and cognitive biases and the things that that were wrong with yourself. And once you do that, then you can start to help other people on the journey as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you kind of touched on this already, but for listeners who want to take an action step after listening to this episode, what would be one action item or piece of homework that you would give them to really begin taking the first step? Because we talked about the importance of taking action to concretely implement some of these ideas in their lives.
2: Well, I I think it depends what they feel their biggest problem is. But, you know, one, one thing I've been recommending is you don't have to delete social media, but one thing I found very useful is, is, Unfollowing or unfriending uh, at least half of the people that you follow and friend that includes news sources and media sources. I try to get my my news from the front page of Wikipedia these days because it's I think it's literally the only unbiased source of information at this point. And then I think it's in terms of just like personal habits and you know we all have those things that we know we should do but we don't do them. I think start thinking about those things in terms of. Thinking brain versus feeling brain. You need to find a way to work with your emotions rather than against them. Because if you if you just try to overwhelm your emotions, it's it never lasts. You know you can do that once or twice, but at some point you have to strike a bargain with your feeling brain and find a way to enjoy whatever it, that the new activity that you want to take on uh, gives you. And for listeners who want to find
1: you, your work. Uh, both of your books, et cetera, online, what is the best place for them to do that?
2: Uh, Website is markmanson.net. There's tons and tons of articles there uh, about all these topics. And then the books, Subtle Art, Not Giving a Fuck. And then the new book is Everything is Fucked, The book about hope. Both of those are probably in every bookstore you could find. So (laughs) go check those out.
1: Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming back on the show, for sharing, again, some tremendous wisdom and insights. And it's great to see your success and how well you've done because I think you're, you're sharing, you're talking about some really important ideas. And I hope the listeners take some action and really implement some of the things we talked about today. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including Our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything, you can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.